Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Israel Nitsan is a veteran Israeli diplomat who has served in a diverse array of postings, from Egypt to the UN to his current role as Israel's acting consul general in New York. There's been a lot of news out of Israel lately, and Acting Consul General Nitsan joins us now to help us break it down and to share his country's view. Israel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Now, we wanted to have you on this week in particular, because Israel has brand new diplomatic ties with the UAE and Bahrain, and you are one of the relatively few Israeli diplomats who actually already has experience representing Israel in an Arab country. What do you think actual practical, on-the-ground peace with the UAE and Bahrain might look like? Is it going to be similar to the Israel-Egypt relationship that you know up close, or is it going to be something totally different? First of all, I think that it is different. This agreement is, is an important milestone, regional milestone today in our Middle East. So at least strategically and regionally, it strengthens our ties, it actually formalizes our ties within our relationship with very important regional players in the Arab Gulf, Sunni Arab countries who, first of all, perceive the threat posed by Iran. We share the perception of the threat posed by Iran, and we agree also on the ways to address these threats. Basically, I think that in the last few weeks, I think that both Israel and its Sunni Arab neighbors in the Gulf called on the international community to continue in the maximum pressure on Iran. So this is at least from this angle. Secondly, you mentioned Egypt, and I think that in many ways, yes, it is going to be a different kind of peace, I think. It seems that it is a much warmer peace. I think that the key to peace in our region is encouraging more and more people-to-people engagement. And this is what we've seen in the last few weeks when people from the Gulf on social media, it seems that it's clear that they are thrilled about the relationship. They're very excited actually encouraging and initiating a dialogue with Israelis. This is great, and I think that this is the key to any future of peace in our region, and especially with our neighbors. That people-to-people engagement is so key, and it's so interesting. I mean, Israel has had peace with Jordan for, you know, 25 years, 26 years, peace with Egypt for even longer. There's a little bit of Sinai tourism, but like it's not a thing for Israelis to, you know, drive to Amman for lunch, right? Do you think Israelis are going to fly to Dubai, fly to Abu Dhabi, fly to Manama and kind of explore the Arab Gulf? I think that definitely yes. Of course, we are in a different reality due to COVID-19, but I think that the expectation is that there is already an ongoing dialogue between Israelis and, uh, and Emiratis over Zoom. Israeli universities, research centers, and startups have already reached out and initiated this very important dialogue with their colleagues in the Gulf. They're talking about basically using our innovative, our meaning both Israel and the UAE, innovative spirit in order to address the needs of our people. And I think that this is also one thing that is clear, that the idea here in this piece is that we prioritize, both Israel and the UAE prioritize the needs of their people. And this is the first step in order to promote a regional peace. Now, as we said, there is an ongoing dialogue between the peoples, between Israeli civil society, between startups, between companies in Israel. I think that uh, you, you mentioned my experience in Egypt, and I think that what I know from my experience in Egypt is that peace is fragile. 
and it must be nurtured. And in many ways, the key to everything is education, especially educating the younger generation, basically educating them to accept the other, to accept the different, to accept Israel as a legitimate neighbor. In many ways, I think that the secret to success of any peace in our region will be found in the media and in the textbooks. And basically through these two means, educating the people today, first of all, in the media, forming and encouraging public opinion supportive of peace, and also through the textbooks, educating the leaders of tomorrow, through schools, universities, and basically educating them about accepting the other, accepting Israel as a neighbor, as a legitimate member, neighbor in our neighborhood. What about the diplomatic change that this could usher in? You spent years at the UN. Up until now, the UAE and Bahrain, along with the rest of the Arab countries, they've all been reliable votes against Israel. By the way, there are plenty of countries who already have normal or even positive relations with Israel that nevertheless often vote against it at the UN. Is this deal going to change the way the Emiratis and the Bahrainis vote? Does it open up any diplomatic possibilities in these multinational bodies like the United Nations? I think that we should differentiate, at least from my experience at the UN, we should differentiate between the dynamics, let's say, on the stage, in the General Assembly Hall, and behind the scenes. Their voting patterns are, let's say, not very supportive of Israel, (laughs) to say the least. But behind the scenes, there is and there has been a very, very intensive dialogue. I, I can tell you from my experience as an Israeli diplomat to the UN, also not too long ago, I had very good relations with the diplomats from Sunni Arab world, especially from the Gulf. We had excellent dialogue and discussions on shared concerns, especially related to the region, especially related to the challenge and the threats posed by Iran and its nuclear program, its missile program. And they have excellent diplomats, and we had very good and productive conversations. And of course, it was behind the scenes. Today, we can actually talk about it. I don't know if they're going to change the voting patterns soon, but I can tell you that at least our expectation is that good relations and good cooperation, bilateral cooperation, should also be translated into policies in the multilateral arena. I'll admit I wasn't holding my breath for good news on the UN front, but I had to ask. One element of the UAE-Israel deal is that the US is apparently going to sell the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, the most advanced warplane in the world, perhaps the most advanced weapon of any kind in the world, to the United Arab Emirates. Israel and Israel's friends in the US have long advocated for the need to maintain Israel's qualitative military edge, or QME, over the rest of the countries in the region. The thinking went that many of these countries are hostile to Israel. Many of them have unstable governments. Who knows if one of these governments should fall, where these weapons could end up, etc., etc. Is Israel concerned about the weapons deal? I have to say that I think that such a dialogue with the United States, and I think that you you know very well, it's a long-term And this dialogue is an intimate dialogue that has been taking place for many, many years. And I think that we should keep it over there. I think that we enjoy, again, part of our very special relations with the United States is having a frank and an honest and a direct dialogue behind closed doors, as allies should do. And I have to say that we are also encouraged, by the way, not only by the support of the administration, but also there is a very vast bipartisan support to the agreement and the role of the United States in encouraging such a 
relationship between Israel and its Arab neighbors. So again, the dialogue with the United States is very intimate. It's very close between the, uh, both the administration and the government and between the American people, of course, and Israel, and we should keep it like that. Mm-hmm. AJC, of course, works uh, assiduously to maintain that bipartisan support for Israel. And I know that you and, and your colleagues in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs feel very strongly about that as well. Israel, while the deal was being signed at the White House this week, the Abraham Accords, literally at the very same moment, terrorists were firing rockets from Gaza into Israel, actually injuring a couple of Israeli civilians, including I saw a 62-year-old father of 15 children who was delivering food to the needy in advance of Rosh Hashanah. The Palestinian Authority over in the West Bank issued a less lethal message, but it was no less of an utter rejection of the deal. What's Israel's response to this kind of firm opposition from the Palestinians to these deals? First of all, I think that what is clear that this agreement, the Abraham Agreement, actually draws a very clear line that differentiate between two camps in our region. There's the camp of peace led by Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia is also an important member in this camp, of course, Egypt, Jordan, and many other Sunni Arab countries in our region. On the other side, we have the camp of war and the camp of terrorism. Iran and its proxies, Hezbollah, Hamas, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, what happened was not a surprise when they decided to shoot the rockets. It was a very clear message from the camp of terror against any step, basically an, a historic event that promotes peace in our region. They're fighting peace. They're fighting our future and the future of peace in our region. And regarding the Palestinians, first of all, the agreement, the Abraham Accord, serves as a, in order to advance not only the interests of the people, but actually as a first step to advance peace in in the Middle East. And first of all, we hope that other neighbors, other Arab countries uh, will follow the leading role of the UAE in Bahrain and join this camp of peace for a dialogue and signing peace agreements with Israel. It should also serve as a mean to bring the Palestinians back to dialogue with uh, with Israel. And uh, as I said, you know, since we're talking about a clear di- distinction between two camps in our region that our Palestinian neighbors should choose, whether or not they choose the path of peace, with all the advantages of peace to the people in the region, or the camp of war and terrorism. And I hope that they will choose wisely. There's a clip going around on Twitter today of former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry speaking in 2016 at the Saban Forum. He says, I think five times in a row, he says, no, 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 no. And what he's saying no to is whether there's any chance that Israel and the Gulf Arab states could improve their relations beyond a certain point before an accord is reached between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Now, it's hard to fault John Kerry. This was kind of the revealed wisdom, the Torah Sinai, for a huge chunk of the world, most of the West, the US, Europe, basically everyone felt this was one kind of peace paradigm that existed. There's a glass ceiling. You know, it's a good thing that Israel and the Gulf states are talking, but there's a glass ceiling to how close they can get until Israel reaches a final conclusion to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 
Now, there was another paradigm all along. It was kind of the Israeli revisionist Zionist right paradigm. You could trace it back to Jabotinsky, but certainly Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, has been a major proponent of this other paradigm that said that actually Israel can't solve its problems with the Palestinians until Israel really feels that it is negotiating from a place of strength, that it has found its place among the nations, that it belongs in the neighborhood in the Middle East, and the Arabs have come to agree with that. How is it possible that so many smart, well-meaning people in the U.S. and Europe have ended up getting it wrong? First of all, again, this agreement, the agreement with the UAE, yes, it's a paradigm shift First of all, it is related to the interests of the people. It's related to what Israel, the importance of Israel in the Middle East, what Israel actually can give as a constructive, innovative, positive neighbor in the Middle East. So this is one thing. And secondly, it is also related to the fact that the Palestinians, I can share again from my experience at the UN, the Palestinians have been hijacking the agenda of the Arab world, of Arab diplomacy, for many years, and people are quite fed up with this. And they said, listen, you know, we will engage with, we have other issues on the agenda. We have a threat posed by Iran, by Hezbollah, by the Houthis in Yemen. We have serious challenges, serious security challenges in the Middle East. We cannot basically follow blindly the footsteps of the Palestinians, and we need to shift the paradigm and to change the agenda. And by engaging constructively with Israel, we can actually bring peace to the region, change the atmosphere, change the agenda, and actually force the Palestinians back into dialogue. So I think that in many ways, it is related to other interests in the region. It's related to the role of Israel and what Israel is all about, the Israeli innovation in the region, and also, again, the Palestinian rejectionism, they could not play with it for too long. I understand we're basically out of time. So let me just say, Israel, that as the state of Israel enters into a new lockdown dealing with the second wave of COVID, that all of our hearts and minds and thoughts and prayers are with our brothers and sisters in Israel, where uh, we're sending all the best to them. And to you, let me say again, thank you for joining us and Shana Tova. Safiya, I will add two more things. One, I think that I should acknowledge, first of all, the role of Jewish leaders. We mentioned the United States, we mentioned Israel, we mentioned our Arab neighbors, but American Jewish leaders, and especially the AJC, had a very important role in facilitating such a dialogue, in nurturing such a dialogue for many, many years. And I think we all appreciate and acknowledge their very important and constructive role in bringing peace to the Middle East. And secondly, to wish you and our listeners, and of course, our dear friends in AJC, Shana Tova and Happy New Year and more than anything, a healthy New Year. And I hope to be able to bring some more good news from our region very soon. Thank you, Israel. We'll be waiting for it. Thank you very much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Benji Rogers, AJC's Associate Director of Policy and Middle East Initiatives. Benji, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Well, Mani and Sefi, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan, and I'm particularly excited to be able to share with you what I'm going to talk about, and that is hope. Now, hope is not a very common thing for somebody who studies the Middle East to be speaking about. 
I have been blessed to spend so much time in the Middle East, traveling, living. I've fallen in love with the people, the culture, the society, the dynamics. But particularly if you look at modern day history and particularly the last 10 years, this is a region that has faced a lot of adversity. This is a region that is dealing with three different civil wars. We've all seen the carnage in Syria. I think our heart breaks when we think of Yemen. And I think we grow increasingly worried when we look at what's going on in Libya right now. To say nothing of the fact that, you know, this is a region of close to 400 million people just in the Arab world alone. Between 60 to 65 percent of the population is under the age of 30. It's, it's really a staggering statistic. And it just shows you the needs that are really going to be coming up in the next decade in terms of jobs and not just any jobs, but good jobs, real jobs, jobs that people want. The challenges are huge and the stakes are incredibly high. Yet on Tuesday, this past Tuesday, we saw something quite remarkable, something quite hopeful take place. And that was the signing of a peace accord between Israel with the United Arab Emirates and the Kingdom of Bahrain, really a historic peace accord, a peace accord that has now doubled the amount of Arab countries that Israel has relations with, Jordan, which was signed in 1994, and before that, Egypt in 1979. Both those agreements were historic in their own right, really shattering in terms of the security for the region, the security for Israel, the security for Egypt, the security for Jordan. Yet what is new, what is exciting about the peace agreements between Israel, the UAE, and Bahrain is that for the first time, we're really seeing a warm peace, a peace that doesn't just fall with the governments, but a peace that's looking to drop down to the personal level, Every single day, we've seen some sort of news story about a new delegation going over or a new agreement that's been made between these three countries. I think just last week, we saw something about one of the major academic institutions, uh, scientific institutions in Israel, signing an agreement with a new and emerging Emirati University on all things but artificial intelligence. Who would have thought? It really is a remarkable thing. And I think when we are talking about hope, when we're thinking about hope, we have to look at the region as a whole and we have to look at all these challenges. And there is no doubt that this agreement can solve all these challenges. It's impossible. It's too big. But I think when we look forward, we are now seeing what we hope will be the beginnings of cooperation, what we hope will be a way forward and a way that says what we have done in the past has not necessarily worked. Let's acknowledge each other. Let's understand that each of us can get to know one another, get to understand one another. And through that, we can find new beginnings. Through that, we can take a step forward to at least addressing the issues. Whenever something historic like this happens, I always like to think back to my uh, favorite Mandela quote, which goes something like, it's always impossible until somebody does it. And I think that's what we have saw, what we saw on Tuesday, which was everybody said the Israeli-Palestinian conflict would be this intractable conflict, that it would not be able to move forward. And in fact, we have seen that it can move forward. I think it would be disingenuous not to mention the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And to only note, because I think we could have an entire session on this alone, but to only note that I think our hope, particularly our hope at AJC, is that all the frustrations, with all the worry, with all the uncertainties... Our hope is that this presents new opportunities to move forward. And so this Shabbat, I think what I'm going to be talking about at my Shabbat table is hope. And furthermore, at Rosh Hashanah, 
as we celebrate the new year. And it really is, I think, a telling time. This has been a tough year for everybody. I don't need to go into detail, but it's been a year of sorrow. It's been a year of tragedy and it's been a year of division. I think it is really a nice thing to be able to say, look what we can achieve with hope. Look what we can achieve coming together. And as we enter the next year, let's be clear-eyed about the challenges that lay ahead. But let's remember that together, there is a way forward. That's beautiful, Benji. Thank you. This is a very special week for us here at People of the Pod because it's not only the end of the Jewish year, but it's also the end of Manya's first year as my co-host. Our podcast got immeasurably better a year ago because Manya joined us. Now she's an old pro, and I'm thrilled to see what the next year will bring. Manya, other than celebrating this important milestone, what are you going to be talking about at your Shabbat dinner? Aw, shucks, Sefi. Thank you for noting that it's been a year, and what a fun year it has been at your side. Benji, Sefi, at our Shabbat table and our Rosh Hashanah table this weekend, we will celebrate life and the length someone in our extended family is willing to go to sustain it. Benji, I really appreciate your message on hope because it's relevant here too. I share this story with permission because he wants his message heard and his voice amplified. Because next week, during the 10 days of awe, he will lose his voice forever. Paul has been fighting esophageal cancer for a little over five years. He has had devastating setbacks, remarkable remissions, followed by more devastating setbacks. 31 rounds of chemo, 56 radiation treatments, and more than 50 surgical procedures. I never know what to expect when I see his sister at family gatherings and ask for an update. I can always tell by the look on her face before she fills me in. On September 23rd, Paul will undergo a surgical procedure that entails removing his stomach, esophagus, and voice box while repositioning his windpipe out the front of his neck through a hole called a stoma. In a heartbreaking and inspiring message to his loved ones, he said the decision to have this life-altering surgery was the easiest one he's ever made because it meant more time with his loved ones, more time to live life. Here's what he said. Looking back five and a half years ago as I was on the heels of commencing this cancer journey, I made a promise to myself. I would do anything to live. I didn't care about pain, disfigurement, weakness, disability. I owe it to my family and to myself. After losing his father when Paul was 11 years old, he talked about not wanting to put his children through the same grief. He wants to see his youngest bar mitzvah in two years. He wants to see his children graduate college, walk down the aisle, give him grandchildren. I am addicted to life, he said. I love life. Simple as that. I love what life has to offer. It's a beautiful world. Paul has reinvented himself. A former podiatrist, he now counsels cancer patients and lectures for staff at Sloan Kettering on the emotional aspects of cancer. This global pandemic has taken an emotional toll on all of us in ways we don't realize. And as I watched my neighbors put up their Biden-Harris and Trump-Pence signs this week, I realized the upcoming election season is going to take yet another toll. So many of my friends have lost loved ones forever. So many more of us long to hug our mothers again, whether she's in Texas or in a senior living facility or just down the street. The pandemic has prompted many of us to consider the things we have taken for granted, but in the midst of juggling the increasing challenges of day-to-day life. Rosh Hashanah offers us the opportunity to pause and reflect on what we often take for granted, those hugs, our lives, our voices. For this Shabbat Table Talk, I will let Paul offer the last word. After this surgery, my voice will not be silenced. On the contrary, I will have a greater voice in this world. My goal is to continue to help others reinvent themselves like I have done after all my knockdowns 
As Rosh Hashanah approaches, let us all try to reinvent ourselves. Let's transform ourselves into better people. Let's hear our true voices. And to that, I say, L'chaim. Sefi, what will you be talking about this week? Thanks so much for sharing that, Manya. I'm, I'm pretty sure Atara and Kukang are crying right now. I remember last year when Yom Kippur ended, I was distraught to turn on my phone after a beautiful day filled with incredible, uplifting prayer to learn that some Jews were not afforded the same opportunity because the synagogue in which they were praying in Halle, Germany, was attacked by a neo-Nazi. While Jews around the world had been communing with God, asking him to guarantee us life in the year ahead, these Jews were cowering behind a locked, reinforced door, quite literally praying for their lives. Their prayers were answered. The gunman couldn't get in, and defeated, he left the synagogue. Tragically, he found other targets, though, murdering a bystander outside the synagogue and then driving to a Turkish kebab shop. In his mind, Muslim immigrants were almost as bad as Jews, and killing one person there. But the story doesn't end at the kebab shop. For one thing, the neo-Nazis' trial has been unfolding this year. For another, the two Turkish brothers who own the store who were working there on the day of the attack, have been dealing with personal traumatic stress, with the stigma of having been the site of a murder, and with the implications of the coronavirus on all restaurants. Enter the Jüdische Studierendunion Deutschland, the Jewish Student Union of Germany, and the president, a mensch named Ruben Gerchigov, who I have gotten to know through his involvement with AJC. Jesed, as the union calls itself, decided that they wanted to help these two Turkish brothers. Quote, we, the Jewish student union in Germany, believe in a multicultural society in this country, the students wrote on a crowdfunding campaign page. Quote, we believe in a peaceful coexistence regardless of religion, nationality, or skin color. We believe in solidarity. Apparently others believe in it too, because in just days, the group has shot past their initial goal of raising 5,000 euros to support these two Turkish brothers and hoped to raise thousands more. Something terrible happened on Yom Kippur last year and two people were killed. But rather than wallow in self-pity, the Jews of Germany stood up, demanded that their government keep them safe, and worked to help ensure the safety of others. What a lesson for us all, and what a way to end the year. Shabbat Shalom and Shana Tova. Shabbat Shalom and Shana Tova. Shabbat Shalom, Shana Tova. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.